This morning I'm going to take a little bit more of a teaching stance than uh, an exhorting preaching stance this morning, although I do uh, hope to preach. I've asked David, first of all, let me pray. Lord, I ask that you would um, bring all the nations and all peoples to uh, praise you. Lord, let the nations be glad and sing for joy because you have made uh, your way known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Do it, God, we ask for your glory, your praise, your renown. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I've asked uh, David to put a picture uh, of myself and Pastor Bob, who is the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Luero, Uganda. And uh, this picture is from when I went to Uganda in 2015, and God sent me a sweet providence in bringing Pastor Bob uh, across my path when I went to Uganda five years ago. Uh, I was thinking, why wasn't I smiling a little bit more? <laughs> but I was so happy to meet Pastor Bob. And I think it was because Dr. Krabendam got us up at 3 a.m. every morning for prayer. And uh, this was near the end of the trip, and I, I was just worn out. The Presbyterian Church in Luero is one of the largest Presbyterian church, churches in Uganda. It was started one Sunday back in the summer of 1991. And I know this because I was there. Uh, I have been to Uganda three times, first in 1990, then again the next year, 1991, and then finally in 2015. During my second trip to Uganda in, in uh, 1991, we held an evangelistic crusade for a whole week uh, in Luero. We were only a little over two years out from the end of the, the uh, Civil War, and the Civil War was horrific. Uh, some of you remember Idi Amin. He not only killed his enemies... But to show his dominance over them, he would eat them. And then, uh, because Milton Obote was not eating his enemies, uh, people, he didn't get as much press. But he was worse than uh, Idi Amin. And uh, he was in power until... Uh, 1998, 1990, yeah, about 1998, uh, when he was deposed uh, from power. And in Luero, he, that was where his worst brutality was carried out. They call it the Luero Triangle. If you look up the Luero Triangle, L-U-W-E-R-O, um, on uh, Google, what you're going to see are pictures of tables of skulls and fields of skulls because the killing was so awful there that the people of Luero in 
would bury the body, keep the skulls to remind themselves of the horrors of living during that time. So anyway, uh, about two years after that killing time, we were there in Luero doing door-to-door evangelism. We also, at night, showed the Jesus film on the side of a building. And this 1991, after 25 years of Civil War, um, movies were not real um, prominent uh, in Uganda. And so when we were showing the movie on the side of a building, the Jesus film on the side of the building, not only the whole town but the surrounding countryside would come out uh, to see the film each evening. And then as people gathered to watch, we'd go out into the crowds and evangelize. And as we did evangelism, we invited them to the worship service. Dr. Krabendam and some Presbyterians from, from Uganda rented a building to start a Presbyterian church uh, with the people who became Christians during that week. The pastor on our mission team that was to preach that Sunday came down with malaria. So I was the next person up. Actually, I was the, the last person uh, um, from our mission team who had ever preached before who had not yet come down with malaria. The, the preachers were dropping like flies. So I was still standing. Dr. Krabendam said, okay, you go preach. I probably preached ten times in my life. Um, and so I was tapped to preach the first service at this new church that would one day become the church where Pastor Bob was the pastor. And so I met this Pastor Bob in in Kampala. And it was a real joy to meet him. There's something more uh, remarkable to this story that I haven't mentioned yet. Bob became a Christian during that week of evangelism in Luero uh, in 1991. And he attended that first service where I preached. And that, to me, is a sweet providence. So, David, you can take that down. I remember the service very well when I preached there uh, for that initial Sunday. I preached from Ezekiel 18 on the topic, The soul that sins will die. But something remarkable happened before I got to preach. We had arranged during the service for three different people who had become Christians during the week to stand up at a a given time. We'd ask them to stand up and give their testimony of how they became a Christian. And so these three uh, people, I think uh, one lady and a couple of men, stood up and gave their testimonies. And after the testimonies... Um, a few hands started to go up. Well, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, so I asked my interpreter to find out, why, why are people raising their hands? They weren't raising their hands, both hands. They were raising one hand, you know, wanting to be recognized. And so he called on the people who had raised their hands, found out that what they wanted to do was they wanted to stand and give a testimony too. And I remember thinking, should I do this? Should I not do this? Is this going to get out of control? He caught me off guard, and I, I said, okay, you can give your testimony. <laughs> One after another, they said that they became Christians listening to the people giving the testimonies. 
And um, so several people became Christians right there. And other people started shooting up their hands to testify that they were giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is before I even got to preach. I I remember uh, asking God, kind of in jest, uh, but for him to save me some fruit to pick, because I'd preached a very, uh, I'd prepared a very evangelistic uh, message, you know, and I'd been looking forward to people hopefully coming to Christ, and uh, I did not fully appreciate it at the time, but we were smack dab in the middle of a great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on the nation of Uganda. And I tell this story because I hope it will set the tone for how we look at Psalm 76. Psalm 76 is a confident prayer for God's saving power to be revealed among all nations. With how things are going in our culture right now, and not only presently, but as they've been going over the past few generations, it's easy to lose sight of Scripture's confidence that God will gather the nations to Himself by His saving power. You know, within the last 110 years, we have had two major world wars. We've also had prolonged conflicts between the wars. During that time, well over 100 million people have been murdered by their own governments between communist China and um, the uh, communist Soviet Union. That accounted for 100 million people right there as they um, killed people who would not bend to their socialistic, communistic uh, style of government. Um, And then in Uganda, Idi Amin and Milton Obote had killed over 100, I'm sorry, over 1 million people in a country of 19 million people uh, during the Civil War. Uh, Furthermore, you know, secularism, secularism has taken a firm hold over all the developed nations. And then you add on, on top of the wars, on top of the political murders, on top of the secularism, you add on a pessimistic outlook uh, for the gospel that is espoused by the more popular end times views where the beast and the Antichrist rule the nations. And so, as a last resort, Jesus has to come and win, win the battle of Armageddon. You know, when you have those, those uh, views being espoused popularly uh, in evangelical Christendom, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the Bible promises victory And it promises victory through the preaching, through the proclamation of the powerful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, even before the 20th century had begun, Christians were becoming pessimistic about the prospects of the gospel. In the 1880s, Spurgeon wrote, Despite the the gloomy notions of some, 
we cling to the belief that the kingdoms of Christ will embrace the whole habitable globe and that all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. I included another quote from Spurgeon on the front of our bulletin, and I'll read that real quickly as well. In his sermon on Psalm 86, verse 9, Spurgeon said, David was not a believer in the theory that the world would grow worse and worse and that the dispensation will wind up with general darkness and idolatry. Earth's sun is to go down amid tenfold night if some of our prophetic brethren are to be believed. Not so do we expect, but we look for a day when the dwellers in all lands shall learn righteousness, shall trust in the Savior, shall worship Thee alone, O God, and shall glorify Thy name. The modern notion has greatly dampened the zeal of the church for missions, and the sooner it is shown to be unscriptural, the better for the cause of God. It neither con consorts with prophecy, honors God, nor inspires the church with ardor. Far hence be it driven. We're going to get to Luke chapter 10 eventually. Um, I think within the, the next year. <laughs> We're in chapter 8, so we'll, I think we'll get there eventually. And uh, in that chapter we'll see that the kingdom of Christ was already breaking into history. We're going to learn as we move through, through Luke. Well, in fact, we've already learned. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God has arrived. But a lot of the notions that are out there is that uh, Satan is completely in control and Jesus is still trying to rest the world back from Satan and to win a person to Christ, to see a person converted to Christ, um, is, to, um, is to, to advance against all the forces of evil. Um, and uh, the Bible teaches that we live now in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the heart, the, the spiritually dead heart, is hard enough to make the the uh, the the work of evangelism to be impossible unless the Holy Spirit is at work. Um, but we are working with Christ being the King, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So Christ is working with us, and that should cause us great optimism as we consider the uh, work that God has put before us in discipling the nations. Now, I've quoted Spurgeon a couple of times, but Charles Spurgeon is not our authority. Scripture is our sole authority on, on all matters of faith and practice. And so I believe here's what's happening according to Scripture. In Psalm 2, a psalm worshiping Christ as the risen Messiah, God promises Christ, uh, He promises the nations to Christ as His possessions. So Psalm 2 says, Ask of me. So the Father is saying to the Messiah, saying to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
uh, as a result of his death and resurrection. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It is this promise in Psalm 2 verse 8 that gives rise to the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Why? How can he say this? Because God has given it to him. The nations will be your possession. So all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is borne out in Scripture after Scripture. Uh, we, we could read many scriptures. Uh, I'll just read uh, some of the shorter ones. Uh, Psalm 72, verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, again in Psalm 72, verse 11. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Isaiah 11 Verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. A couple of verses down in verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Moving on into the book of Revelation. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, I recognize that there are prophetic systems and eschatological timelines that push these prophecies off into a time beyond the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to put forward my eschatological view, uh, nor am I going to offer arguments against other views, um, except to offer a soft caution. The Bible, in many places, ties the return of Christ and the day of judgment very tightly together. And so I don't think that a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ is easily wedged in between the return of Christ and the day of judgment. Uh, Secondly, the 1,000-year reign of Christ is based on Revelation 20, which is notoriously the most difficult chapter in the Bible to understand. So to insert a 1,000-year reign of Christ between the return of Christ and the day of judgment based only on that passage presents a difficulty. So I'm just having that as a word of caution, not saying that the premillennial timeline is wrong. I don't espouse that view, but I'm just saying have that caution. Think that through. Now, if this is new teaching to you, and you'd like to explore it more, I have a couple of book recommendations. Uh, first, The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. And uh, I love this book. Um, my copy has is falling apart, uh, but 
I ordered four copies. Two have been snatched up already. I've got one here, and there's one in the back. But um, And then the other is John Piper. Uh, on Thursday afternoon, I, I realized, oh, John Piper's written a book using um, one of the verses from Psalm 67. So maybe I should look at it and see what he has to say since the whole book is based on the title from one of the verses in our text. So, uh, let the nations be glad. What I have done was on the sermon notes, I included the the um, information for these books and how you could get it. So, that being said, let's look at the text. We will not be real long in the text. As I mentioned earlier, Psalm 67 is a prayer for God's saving power to be known among all nations. So look at verses 1 through 3. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist prays that God would be gracious to Israel and would bless God's people in verse 1. But there's a larger goal to this prayer. There's a larger goal for him asking God to bless him and to bless Israel. See, he wants Israel to be blessed in order that the other nations would receive God's salvation. From the time that God was called, I mean, sorry, Abraham was called to leave Ur of the Chaldees, God's intentions were larger than simply starting a single nation to be his own possession. Paul says in in, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Israel pridefully took too small a a view of God's purposes. They believed all God's blessings began and, and ended with them. But the writer of Psalm 67 knew better. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. And if you add the word why between verses 1 and 2, it'll make, it'll make abundant sense. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why should he do that? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. You know, I love the way John Piper puts it. God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. When the nations saw how Israel was blessed because God was their God, the response was to be, how can I have that God as my God? Israel had too small a view of God's purposes. And we should be slow to scoff at Israel 
Because we too can have too small a view of God's purposes. We can fall into the error of thinking that God only saves people to keep them out of hell or to have a relationship with Him. And those things are true. But God has a higher purpose for our salvation. Verse 3 shows us what that purpose is. Verse 3. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. In other words, the ultimate purpose of our salvation is God's glory. Our salvation is not just about us. It's always about God. As John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their knees before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So the ultimate purpose of our salvation is to worship God. Or what does he tell the, 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 uh, the Samaritan woman by the well? God is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. That's evangelism. We are out seeking worshipers for our God. And our message is, God loves you so much that He sent His own Son to be your Savior. If you're not living to worship God, or if you've not come to God for His salvation, you are sinning against the very purpose for which God created you. But if you do love and trust Jesus Christ, the very act of opening your hymnal or opening your Bible this morning to worship God is fulfilling the very um, the, the ultimate purpose for your existence. You coming here to worship Jesus Christ is why you were created and why God saved you. Now in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist looks to the time after Christ's resurrection and ascension when He will be reigning over all nations and all peoples. And as I've already alluded to earlier in the sermon, this is a present reality. Jesus will not be at some future time King of kings and Lord of lords. He is presently. He is ruling and reigning now. He is bringing all things underneath His feet now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. His, and His kingly reign is expressed by the conversion of people as they experience His saving power. Christ by the gospel, is subduing the world to himself one transformed life at a time. He reigns. He's king. And now, through the gospel, he's bringing people into his kingdom. But the psalmist has a hopeful certainty that this tiny remnant of people would swell to include nations and peoples. As the nations submit to King Jesus, 
His righteousness will provide true justice and His Word will provide true guidance to the kings of the earth. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. With Jesus' righteousness ruling our lives, the nations of the earth will be glad and will sing for joy. Now, we're in an election year. Um... Let me just remind you, I was going to go into a little more detail, but I'm going to cut this a little short. But I do want to remind you that no government or political leader will bring the gladness, joy, and righteousness that our Lord Jesus Christ will bring to the nations. Um, there are a lot of people looking to socialism for, um, for salvation. And uh, it will not um, bring the freedom and justice and, and joy that Christ will bring because it is authoritarian at its heart. Um, I will say this. I, I think the best government, because we are sinners, is the government that limits the power of government because we are sinful people. Um, we can see the effects of Christ's reign here in history. Our, as our Lord Jesus, uh, with the Reformation, oh, first of all, when, when during the, uh, the first century, uh, the, the uh, kingdoms of the world uh, convulsed against Christ put Christians to death. But then the government began under Constantine loosening its hands a little bit. Constantine was far from perfect, uh, far from being what we would call a Christian government. But with the Reformation, uh, the absolute power of monarchs began to lessen. Because the freedom we have in Christ began to come forward, began to come to the fore. And um, we can see the effects of His reign. Where Jesus reigns, men and women's hearts are loosened. Freedom, justice, righteousness began to press forward into our culture. And as we retreat from the gospel, as we retreat from the Lord Jesus Christ as a culture, what happens is our freedom, uh, justice, righteousness, begins to recede into the background. Now, as we come to our concluding point, I want to be clear. If you haven't already heard me say it, I believe that Jesus Christ will use His powerful gospel to bring a majority of the world to himself. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime. I sincerely doubt it will happen in my children or my children's children's lifetime, but I pray for it earnestly. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ will, in keeping with these 
prayers like Psalm 67, in keeping with His promises, will pour out His Holy Spirit upon nations. He will raise up missionaries. He will raise up pastors. And multitudes will come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as they did during the Reformation, as they did during the first century, as they did here in America during the Great Awakening, as, the, as, as I got the joy of experiencing in Uganda. We have heard reports out of China that the gospel is spreading as fast as the coronavirus. I've heard reports out of Iran that make my jaw hit the floor. That the gospel is spreading in that nation where the gospel is outlawed. Christ is on the march, even if we are not experiencing great conversions here in America. I believe that Christ marches from one nation to another. He pours out His Spirit on His people so that they experience gospel abundance in the way of conversions. But then when the church grows self-confident, when the church stops looking to the Lord Jesus in in, in dependence upon Him, Christ moves on to other nations, shaking the dust from His feet. doesn't mean... That he forgets us. He establishes churches like our little church family here in Brandon. And like other churches all around our uh, community. All around the communities here in America. Of people who love the Lord Jesus. But then he continues marching around the world. Our Savior is a powerful Savior. If there's anything else that I can drive home this morning, it is that. Our Savior, your Savior, is a powerful Savior. No matter how hard our culture is, no matter how fast our culture is retreating from the gospel, Christ is more powerful. The gospel is more powerful than we often give it credit. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. In this salvation, spiritually dead people are raised to new life in Christ. In this gospel, the power of sin is broken. In this gospel, all our sin and guilt is forgiven and never counted against us again. Our soul is filled with the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit makes our heart His home, making us spiritually fruitful, making us more like our Lord Jesus Christ, giving us love for our neighbors and our enemies. In other words, our salvation is a powerful salvation that transforms one's entire existence. And I I must pause and ask, has your life been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you just a Christian in confession only? Because our salvation is so powerful, it will transform whole nations and cultures. It's done it before. It is continuing to do it again in other nations. And I believe it will do it again. Because our Lord Jesus is at work. 
doesn't mean He's not at work here among us today. The Lord Jesus may pour out His salvation upon you right now. You might not be looking to be very devoted to God. God might break you down in repentance today. I went to college looking forward to my freedom. I got to college and Brent Robinson started reading the Bible to me. My freshman year, and I had such plans for the rest of college with living for myself and chasing the pleasures of of life, and the Lord Jesus Christ caught me and brought me to Himself. He may do that to you today. I pray if you do not know the Lord Jesus, He would do exactly that right now. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ if you don't know Him. I've experienced the powerful transformation of the gospel in my own own life, as many of you have. I've had the wonderful experience of tasting the powerful outpouring of the gospel in Uganda. And with confident hope, I look for our Lord Jesus to visit our nation again with abundance, even if it is not in our own lifetimes, as we pray together. Lord Jesus... I do ask that you would be gracious to us and pour out your gospel upon us. God, I ask that there be none here within the sound of my voice who leave here today without knowing Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give us this hopeful confidence that you you have given the nations to Christ, therefore, He will bring all nations to submit to Himself through the gospel. And that You would transform our prayer lives, Lord, as we with bold confidence come before Your throne of grace. Help us to be bold in sharing our faith because we know that our Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost for His own glory and the glory of His Father. We pray in... His name, amen.